there's been so many people for whom the Bible hasn't made sense. And so that's been our goal in these, uh, these talks we've been doing about demystifying the Scriptures. And just last week, we were talking about the Bible as an instruction manual and how some of us can relate to that idea of, of the Bible being an instruction manual or a guide for life. Today, I just want to change the, the angle a little bit and just sort of refocus it to a different idea of the, of the Bible being the story of God that we get to interact with. Now, all of us love great stories. Um, I don't know if you're into books or movies. Maybe you could tell us in the chat. Not that I could see that right now, but it could be fun for you maybe. But like, I don't know if you're more of a book person or a movie person. Um, but I love movies. Uh, I, I can think off the top of... Uh, my head of some great movies that I love. I love Shawshank Redemption. I think that was an incredible movie. Uh, Andy Dufresne getting out of that 500-foot sewage pipe at the end of it and just like almost like half naked, just arms up in the sky in the rain, sort of declaring his freedom from Shawshank Prison. I loved uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. For some reason, I saw that movie when I was 10, which should never have happened. But when that came out, I remember seeing it shortly after it released um, on TV and thinking this was awesome. Uh, if you don't know the phrase, mmm, juicy fruit, then you've missed one of the best movie quotes of all time. Um, and then I'm a, I'm a bit of a time travel nerd, so I love Back to the Future, and they're always trying to get back to 1955, and I've probably seen that movie 1955 times. i uh, watched it so many times just as a kid and then growing up as well. But do you know there's one consistent theme in the top 100 grossing movies of all time? And that's that they essentially follow a similar plot line. You know, there's always uh, something that's all together, sort of, sort of perfection at the beginning, everything's great, and then there's something that's lost um, by a certain individual or people, sometimes because of a villain, and then there's a big struggle along the way to get whatever was lost back. Um, and then there's usually an almighty struggle of, of redemption at the end, sometimes assisted by a guide to whoever the hero is. And then there's resolution at the end. And that's pretty much the plot line for, for, um, for hundreds of movies, hundreds of stories. The thing is, is here's the amazing thing, amazing thing. Where did they get that, that plot line from? It essentially comes from the greatest story ever told, from, from the pages of Scripture. Because... The greatest stories of all time follow the plot line of the greatest story of all time. So at the beginning today, I want to use the uh, talents uh, and abilities of, of our friend Abdu Murray, who's been serving us for this series with some short talks. And Abdu is going to talk for a few moments this morning on his perspective on the story of the Bible. So let's watch this together. One of the uniquenesses about the Bible is its unity of diversity. Uh, it's one book in one sense, but it's a multiplicity of books in another sense. You have 66 books of the Bible, um, and they're written by 40 different authors in three different languages across multiple continents. And it's just a wonder that it even has anything remotely close to a unified story. And yet it does. And that unified story has often been characterized as the idea of creation, the fall uh, of humans from a state of uh, bliss with God to a state of uh, sin, um, to redemption that happens, to a state of consummation where all is made right and there's heaven and the new earth and the new heavens are there and everything is made right. The righteous to that heaven, the wicked to condemnation. And that's the basic arch of the story. 
Um, and that is told repeatedly. Sometimes whole books of the Bible actually contain that whole story within just the one book, and then it's projected over all the books. And it's remarkable that it's a, con- a continuity of message throughout the whole thing. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you look at most narratives, and we love narratives, human beings, we just, we crave that. We don't just like a string of truths put together. We like the idea of how do these truths fit into the overall story. That's why we love movies and books so much and why uh, most truths are told best through story. And the Bible, knowing our nature, I think is actually written in that way. It's not just a series of laws or a series of poetry or whatever it is. It's stories and law and poetry put together. Now, most stories have a beginning, middle, and an end. And that's how you have a complete story. The Bible, I think, is beautiful in the sense that it has those elements, but has more. It's got a pre-beginning, a beginning, a middle, an end, and a never end, which I think is an amazing matrix through which to look at the story of the Bible. What is the pre-beginning? The pre-beginning is essentially that God is a beginningless, uh, uncaused being. He always existed and he always will exist. And yet through his um, sovereignty, through his power, he actually creates time, matter, energy, and space. And that's when the beginning starts. So you have a pre-beginning, a God who actually exists. And he doesn't just exist as some impersonal force. No, the Trinity is the unity of diversities that exists within God. So you have one being existing in three distinct personhoods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And each of them live from eternity past in the community of the Trinity. So you're not just sitting there wondering what to do with his life. He actually has community within himself. Now, that's an interesting aside, by the way, the fact that God is a unity of diversities and the Bible itself is a unity of diversities. That's amazing because it reflects the creator. So this pre-beginning happens or exists with God. And then the beginning happens as he begins to create. And what does he create? He creates human beings who are made in his image, who reflect something of the divine. And the purpose of humanity is relationship. And that makes complete sense because we are incurably relational beings. Each one of us is. Everyone in the sound of my voice has, wants, craves, covets, or mourns a loss of relationships. Now, what explains that? A blind, pitiless, indifferent universe that just doesn't have relationship within itself is mindless? Or if you're the effect, what better explains you than a being who is himself a being in relationship, the Trinitarian God? So the beginningless being creates us in the beginning to have relationship. But there is that fall that happens. There is that rejection of relationship in favor of being God himself. And that begins the whole middle part where you see time and again, the nation of Israel being given favor and being um, saved out of bondage only to reject God once again, and then him judging, but then returning to them in mercy. So judgment and mercy and love repeated over and over and over again, three facets of human existence that we can't do without. And he does it over and over and over again. And that's in the middle. And then you have the pre-beginning, the beginning, then the middle, then you have the end. And the word end is interesting because in the Greek, the word end can be telos. Telos means purpose. So to what end was this done? In other words, to what purpose was this? Well, the entire purpose of the story is the cross itself. It's that ending position. It's that statement in history where Jesus comes, God himself enters into human history, lives the life we can't live so that he can bear our burdens for us. And that when he bears our burdens for us, we are forgiven. 
and there's that crux of history. And by the way, I think it's not a mistake that the word crucifixion has the Latin word crux as its root. And that word crux means the place where all things converge and turn. And the place of history where all things converge, forgiveness, uh, judgment, mercy, love, redemption is at the cross. All of it comes at this crux of history where Jesus not only takes on the sins of the world, but he rises from the dead to prove that he has power over death so that we will one day enter in to that never ending, that never ending that Paul describes as a place that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has even entered in the heart of man, that which God has created for those who love him. And that's that never ending that's to come. The beauty of it is this, no matter what you think the ending might be like, the never ending is better. I love the way that Abdu talks about the scriptures and talks about how God has put together his story. And I'm going to attempt to do that a little bit this morning uh, just to reflect on that a bit. By the way, if you haven't uh, heard of any, Ab- any of Abdu Murray's material, go to YouTube and look up Abdu Murray and every bit of his teaching on, uh, on YouTube is fantastic. So the story of God is what we have right here. And I want to just kind of wrap it up into four short chapters this morning. The first one I'm going to call perfect because that's the world that God created. The Bible says that in Genesis Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Imagine that, this dark, formless empty earth. And then there starts out, there's nothing, but God breathes life. There's that famous phrase, which is in verse 3, which says, let there be light. God breathes light and creates light out of nothingness. God brings uh, order from chaos and uh, turns a dark, formless world into something that starts to, to grow. And then he creates and creates and creates it every day after he creates every period of time after which God creates he says it says he saw that it was good and then on the sixth day he creates man and woman and it says he saw that it was very good and there's this big difference between creation of man and creation of everything else this is the the pinnacle of God's creation right here in fact in verse 27 so it says God created mankind in his own image In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Amazing. It's that humanity is breathed into by the breath of God. It's given a purpose. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We're given that first hint there that mankind is in charge and is responsible for everything that's created. And it's our responsibility to be stewards of the earth that God has made. That's chapter one. And then God, and, and then God allows us to go into a, a deeper and darker chapter, which is the chapter called sin. This is the time when, when the devil, the enemy of our souls, enters, to, enters the world and starts to bring doubt. Some of you might be thinking, wait, you guys believe in the devil as well as believe in God? All right, I'm out because I'm not about this sort of like, you know, red cape, pitchfork and horns guy. And I don't believe that 
is who the devil is, but I do believe that there's a devil, and I do believe that God sent him to this earth. Guess, guess what happened right here? You might not even know that this ever took place, but before the world was created, the devil was an angel in heaven. He was an archangel, which means he was probably a superior or significant angel, only a few steps below God. But, but uh, Satan, or Lucifer, as he was called back then, the, the, the archangel, was uh, trying to usurp God's authority. And so he was cast down to the earth. And we can piece this, this uh, theology together from a few prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament where we see that the devil was cast down to the earth. That's why you see at the very beginning that the earth was formless and dark and empty. Imagine if, if nothing existed on earth except for the devil. It would be nothing but, but formless and empty until God decides to come into this, to this, to this planet earth and create light. Now, throughout this, this uh, period of perfection that, that was in the Garden of Eden, God allows for Satan to question Adam and Eve and ask them this question, did God really say? It's the tactic of the enemy to continually, to continually use that question to us. Did God really say? Did God really save you? Did God really change you? Did God really do this to always sow doubt into your minds as to what you believe? And once humans start moving around the earth, they're faced with this continual choice between good and evil. Despite the fact that God had laid out parameters for them, uh, we have to learn to decide in this world, are we going to choose good or are we going to choose evil in this world of freedom? And that's when sin entered in and brokenness and fear and pain and suffering and violence. And most of all, separation. Separation from people to God. And you wonder, will they, will they keep themselves at the center of their own world or will they turn back to God? And throughout the time uh, where you read about the, the, the people of Israel, uh, God's chosen people making decisions over and over again to choose themselves or to choose God. And their, their success or their failure would be determined by whether they choose themselves at the center of their world or choose God at the center of the world. I love how God used Abraham in a very unique way and said, I'm going to make you the father of the nation of Israel. I'm going to, it's going to be in your descendants that is going to come the nation of Israel and eventually is going to come the solution. And God said to Abraham that he wanted the whole world to be blessed through Israel, through God's chosen people. The whole world was to be blessed through this people. But eventually their distance from God and their choice to ignore God led them to a scattering where the, the people of God are scattered across the world. This people who were supposed to be uh, an example of God's love and God's, uh, uh, just got God's love poured out on them is now scattered through the world. And there's this period of what seems to be darkness where it, it seems like God has, has put himself on mute for 400 years. Did you know that the end of the last page of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus came uh, is a space of about 400 years where it seems like God wasn't speaking, where it seems like God had forgotten His people or forgotten His plan to redeem mankind out of the mess that it was in. But if you think 2020 is bad, and if you think you're sometimes 
shaking your fist, which maybe some of you are, and crying out to God, God, where are you in our suffering? Where are you in this, this period where it seems like you're not near to us? Imagine what it's like to, to be in a 400-year period of time where God is working behind the scenes and is still doing His work. He's still fulfilling His plan. And that's what was taking place. Because then came chapter 3, where God provided a solution. The solution wasn't an idea or a theory or a process or anything like that, but it was in the person of Jesus Christ. When Abdu talked earlier about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was talking about the Son, the one who has been with God since the very beginning. The Bible says that when Jesus came, it was essentially the Word becoming flesh. It was God becoming flesh. It wasn't just God uh, embracing the world from above, but it was God coming down to earth and wrapping His arms around mankind. Previously, God had seemed to be this distant, socially distant, mask-wearing God who was far away from mankind, but He's coming down. He's taking off the mask, and He's embracing the world. God entered the world, and we say this phrase sometimes for Christmas, but we talk about Him being the Emmanuel. This phrase means God with us. And that, that passage of Scripture from Isaiah 9 is often quoted around, uh, uh, around Christmas because the angel said to Gabriel that, that he will be, his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. There was this realization that God was coming down to earth. What an incredible solution to the problem of sin that had come into the world. Jesus walked and taught and healed and preached a new kingdom, talked about something that was shifting, that sin was going to eventually be overthrown. But although Jesus was the solution, the greatest battle and the greatest conflict was still yet to come. Jesus predicted His own, his own torture and brutal death and resurrection in a way that we can't really understand, Jesus allowed the evil in humanity to, to kill him, to defeat him. Is this what a, what a king does? He was tortured to a pulp. He was nailed to a cross and crucified. And the, the people at the time just joked with him and, and uh, put words above, the, above his head on the cross that he was crucified to. In Matthew 27, he said, above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In a, a sarcastic, joking fashion, they wanted to mock and ridicule anyone who would, who would have decided to follow him. That, go ahead, follow your king. Follow the one who is now dead. Matthew 27 continues. It says, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And there's some Aramaic words there which mean, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Imagine that. Imagine this unique time in history where it seems that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has, in a way that we can't truly understand and theologians wrestle with for hundreds of years, somehow separated that, that the Son has been forsaken by the Father. We can't get our heads around that, but this, uh, this moment in history changed everything. Verse 50 says that and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice from the cross, he gave up his spirit. Jesus allowed himself to die. He gave up his spirit. It was a choice. A choice to, 
to sacrifice his life for our sin. And then this is kind of one of those things that, that, that ties it all together. If you know a little bit about the history of Israel and their, the, the way that they would uh, make sacrifices and then uh, be redeemed from their sin. It says in verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Now, what that means is that in the, in the Jewish temple, there was uh, a place where all the people would come to, and then there was a section where only the priest would go to, which was called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go into that place once a year on behalf of the people, and behind a huge, tall, thick curtain, he would make a sacrifice of a lamb or, a, or an animal that would be a sacrifice for their sin once a year. Blood would be spilled to make atonement for the sin of the people. And it's fascinating. In that verse there, 51, it says that at the moment when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple ripped in two from top to bottom. You know why it was top to bottom? Because God did it. God was basically saying to mankind that, that what, was, what was closed, where God was closed off from people, He's now coming near. God's coming out into your world. God is now present with His people. Incredible, isn't it, that Jesus' death was that, that, that most conflicting moment in this, in this grand, epic, blockbuster story. And that moment is the moment that changed everything. Jesus not only defeated death, but He absolutely conquered it and made a way for humanity to be made right with God when he rose from the dead three days later. And he, and, and he was seen by, by, by hundreds of people that, that uh, could testify to the resurrection of Christ. He established a brand new kingdom. And that leads us to this fourth chapter that God is bringing about, this chapter of perfection, as God is bringing about the redemption of all things. See, God's kingdom breaks down every barrier and followers, followers of Jesus can have a confidence in the hope of their salvation that, that, that is not something that they, they can't be sure of, but they can be totally sure of. One author said that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And that's kind of weird technology, uh, weird, weird, not technology, what's the word, weird um, Somebody help me here, you know, uh, uh, with terminology. I did say tech. Thank you very much, Ashley and Mikey, doing an awesome job here. Weird technology. I'm surrounded by technology. But that's weird terminology to think that, um, that, that, that God is here to make dead people live. I remember when one of my kids was young, he used to, used to talk about the past. And he used to say, Dad, you know, back, back in history, back when you were dead. And I used to have to correct him. I'm like, well, it's not called being dead when, when you didn't exist yet. But... But essentially, God says that, that Jesus died so that we who were dead in our sins, we who, who were, were already dead when we were born and lived dead lives, could become alive in Christ. How awesome is that, right? That we get to live, we get to be brought to life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 8 says, uh, Paul says, one of the, the writers of the New Testament said this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How cool is that, right? That nothing can separate us from God. And there's so many things that he describes there that might, might get in the way of our relationship with God. That's why if, if we, we know that the, the, word, the Bible says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We've been, something new has been created in us. And we've been given that chance to enter into the great, cosmic, enormous, global, blockbuster story of God called the Bible. When we live our lives through these pages, we insert, we're choosing to insert our lives into Christ. We say we're in Christ. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be lived in Christ. I want Christ to be everything I see. I want Christ to be my worldview. I want Christ to be my vision. I want Him to be the thing that is at the center of everything I know and everything I believe because He's at the center of human history and He's at the center of God's plan. And if you're wondering today, like, how do I, how do I get right with God? How do I come into the story of God? How do I, in the 21st century, surrounded by the mess in my own life and surrounded by the mess in this world, how do I get into this story of God? It's by you saying to God, Jesus, I want, to, I want to forget living my own story. And I want to live solely within your story. I want to be in Christ. God, I know I'm distant from you. I know that everything within me is far from you. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I represent that chapter, which is nothing but sin and darkness and separation from God. And I believe it's only by coming into Christ, coming into that relationship with Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection, that I can have freedom with Him. And my prayer today for you, for anyone who's listening to this, is that we will learn day by day to live in Christ and to live with our lives inserted into the great pages of God's great story.